The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Ruth chapter 3 is such a tremendous story, really the whole book. We began this book with, uh, with the devastation of a family who's fled, uh, who's fled really uh, drought. They've fled uh, for lack of sources and resources. They've fled to the land of Moab, of course. And there, a father and a mother with their sons seek refuge there. They seek supplies there. Uh, they, they, they seek wives for their sons there, uh, ultimately to endure a tremendous amount of tragedy there. Uh, losing their sons, uh, uh, Naomi losing her husband, and ultimately coming back to Jerusalem, coming back towards Jerusalem, towards Bethlehem, as they hear that the, the, the famine has ended. And so then, uh, you know, as they come back, they're, they're kind of re-engaging into society. That's what Danny looked at across a couple weeks in chapter 2 where they go into the, uh, Ruth goes out and she goes to collect uh, wheat, collect grain. Uh, she has these interactions where she interacts with Boaz. Uh, she has these uh, experiences of, of gathering up the grain that's left behind and Boaz showing favor to her. And ultimately that leads us to where we're at today in, in really a text that's incredibly significant. And as I've been sitting with this text and as I've been praying over it, what's just struck me over and over again is how beautiful God's redemption is throughout history, how beautiful it is in the minute and in the large scale, that when we look at how God works, it's in every level of the process. You know, I'm picturing just some kind of uh, lens that, that, you know, as you look up close, you can see him working but you only get little parts of it. And you zoom out and you, you say, oh, I see the bigger picture now, but then you zoom out even further and there's even greater picture and a greater depth and there's so much more meaning. And, and, and however far you wanna zoom out, you're gonna see more of God's redemptive plan and his love for us. And in this story, we see just such an interplay of God and humanity that, that, that we would no doubt see countless times throughout history, if we were able to just constantly zoom in, we would just continually see just this, this interplay of how God interacts with all of humanity and his love and redemption. But then within this story, if you zoom in far enough, you're going to just, you see just the pain, you see just the grief, uh, and you see the moments like Naomi where she call, renames herself Mara because she only sees the bitterness but then what we get to do in looking at this story is we get to see the whole thing. We get to zoom back out. And so in and out, and you see God moving intricately and how that speaks to our lives, how that speaks to how he cares about each and every one of us. Because let me tell you, one of the things that really uh, captured me in looking at this text is, is that Ruth was not that was not that special of an individual in the history of humanity. Even in the history of Israel, we don't have uh, singled out to us uh, all these different people throughout the line of David, because that's gonna be the big, the big thing that if you were to have you know, a bio of the life of Ruth, in line one, you would say you know, the great-great-grandmother of, of David, right? But you don't have 
everyone in between, before and after. You don't have that many people in the line of David. And you don't have that many stories from throughout the judges, just a, a few captured in that book. But this book of Ruth is just this story that God chose to highlight for us. And in it, I, I believe it, it's, its intention is to highlight that God's interactions are with all of us. And that every single one of us plays into, is invited into being a part of, of essentially, in a, in a way, God's lineage. We're invited into being a part of his family. We're given inheritance. We're invited into the process. You know, part of her process was, was ultimately leading to David who would lead in the line to Jesus. But part of our process is leading other people into the family and inviting them into the ministry of reconciliation. And so, so you have this beautiful story that is just this, this microcosm of God's redemptive plan over and over and over again. You know, even in this book, it began by talking about uh, the patriarch of this family and it says he was a certain man. It just says now there was a certain man. And it's just indicating that he was not a specifically significant, and none of these were outside of the fact that we're all significant in God's eyes. We all have a part in his redemptive plan. And so we have God in our midst, and he's calling us into the process. He's calling us to be redeemed, to be restored, to be brought near. So as we look at this text, we're going to see three I've titled in your notes, scenes. Uh, scene one is uh, I titled Naomi Has a Plan. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at Ruth and Naomi's residence. Uh, there's going to be an interaction with Ruth and Naomi where they hatch a plan. Uh, and then the plan is going to be implemented. And it all takes place across one evening through a night and into the next morning. So the plan is hatched. Uh, and then it's, uh, the second scene takes place at the threshing floor, uh, where, the, where they come into this meeting at the threshing floor. And, and across the, the nighttime, you know, when everyone else was sleeping across the land of Bethlehem, we have this significant portion of this redemption story. And then scene three is back to the residence, where essentially the, the fulfillment, the, the, the filling up, and I titled it, Ruth Comes Back Full. We'll see her come with a lot of wheat and grain with her. And so we have these three scenes laying out this story for us tonight. And so let's begin with the first scene, Naomi has a plan. And so here we are. Uh, Naomi has been, I think, mulling over uh, what took place in chapter two, right? Na uh, Ruth comes back, and, and it's clear to Naomi that, that Boaz was very favorable towards Ruth. And, and this ignites uh, some creativity and some thought in Naomi. So verse one of chapter three says, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So I think there's a few things to draw out here, and this is how we're going to go through tonight. We're going to read a few verses. We're going to pull out some of what God has for us. And so what we see here first and foremost that I think is fascinating is that Naomi is walking through her process of grief. Right? We saw in chapter one, as I mentioned a second ago, that she was in great 
exceeding grief. And, and when you're in that kind of grief, you don't make plans. You don't, you don't look to the future because you're indifferent to the future when you're really in the depths of your grief. But what I think is encouraging as we look at this for Naomi is that she's starting to dream a little bit. She's starting to uh, think things through. We're going to see that she's really thought this through because she's going to even have instructions on how to go about this. So she comes with a plan. And her plan begins by convincing Ruth of the next step. And what she does is she comes with two kind of questions in, in kind of the negative form. She says, should I not find a long-term home for you, essentially? This is me kind of translating. Should I not make for you a provider? Should we not find for you a provider? And then she follows it up with, you know, it's, it's almost a, a rhetorical question. Yes, I should. I should find you a home. We should figure this out, you know, uh, that you're not always going to have Ruth there with you uh, or Naomi there with you. Ruth is a, an outsider from Moab. We need to figure this out to, to solidify your situation. And then she comes uh, along after that by saying, is not Boaz our close relative? Of course, she knows the answer to both of these but she's trying to pull out of, of Ruth that this is, this is the plan that we should go with. And then she says, and, and actually, I know where he is tonight. Because you see, it was at the end of the harvest, right, that we saw in chapter 2 that Ruth was out there following them as they were reaping, you know, uh, some ways into the, 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 the planting and the seeds growing. You have the reaping right there near the end. And she would walk behind and pick up the leftover grain. But now they're in the final stage, which is the threshing floor, where you, where you try and separate the wheat from the chaff and you come away with just that which is edible. And so she says, I know where he is tonight. He's at the threshing floor. And so then verse 3, she says, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And so Ruth's instruction is to go prepare herself. And now in this situation, they both were in their grieving process. And in this culture, in this day, the grieving process was, had, uh, had customs to it. There would be different clothing worn. They would have been not putting on makeup. They would have not been putting on perfumes. They would have been wearing clothes that were meant to be dull or just not, uh, not putting a lot of effort into it, right? That there was meant to be this idea that you were, you were showing on the outward your, your feelings and, your, and your, your, what you were processing. And, and essentially, when the time came where you were ready to uh, start living your life again, you would signify that to the world around you by the fact that you, you began to dress a little bit differently, you began to present yourself a little bit differently. And so essentially what, what uh, Naomi's instructing Ruth to do is, is indicate that you are now ready, that you're ready to, to move forward, that, that your time of uh, official grieving has, has come to an end and that you're ready to, to get back out there into the world. And so that's her instruction to Ruth is to, to go get ready, to, to get yourself ready. And, and really even too with it, there's an idea of kind of how a bride would prepare herself that she would, she would put this very intentional effort into, into how she got ready. You know, for us, we think of obviously brides as well, but, but proms or weddings when we attend a wedding or just different things where we, you just kind of step it up a little bit, you know? For me, stepping it up uh, means nothing, basically. Uh, there's nothing different you do with this. But, um, <laughs> but for, for some of you, it really, you know, it means, you know, getting your hair all 
done up or whatever. That must be nice for you. Um, so verse four, uh, it says, uh, then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Verse five, Ruth responds. This was all Naomi with instructions. Ruth responds, all that you say to me, I will do. And so here we have Ruth given an opportunity to step out. We'll talk about what she's being asked to do a little more in a second by Naomi. But, but just here, just at the, at the simplest form of it, she's being asked to take this step. And this is a big step. I have such a hard time, I don't know about you guys, but I have such a hard time separating for myself uh, what I know the story is and have always known what the story is and how it ends from, and then because of that, I have a hard time really recognizing how she felt in this moment, right? Because we've known, as long as we've known the story of Ruth, that it ends incredibly well. But Ruth didn't know that the story ends incredibly well. Ruth's experience in life was that a lot of things go very poorly. Ruth had had a love relationship before. Ruth had entered into marriage, and that had gone poorly. And now she, no doubt, had come into this land. The Moabites were not appreciated by the Israelites. They were thought of as, as outcasts. They had had confrontations. They were, they, were not, uh, they were not welcome people in large part, and yet, uh, here's Ruth being told by her mother-in-law to go at night to the threshing floor. And what she's asking her to do is essentially propose, essentially ask him, say, take me in, take me under your covering, uh, allow me to be a part of your family. And it's in a pretty unique way that she asks her to go through this process. And yet what we see in Ruth, and we see it in Ruth throughout, is that she's willing to take these steps. She's willing to do it in loyalty. She's willing to put herself out there. She's willing to make herself vulnerable. She's willing to walk in these things. And so I just think that we should focus on that for a second of this characteristic of Ruth, because Ruth has so much that, that the text means and intends to highlight. And one of them is as she's asked to step out, she steps out. Right? We begin with her doing that as she says no to Naomi. I am going to come with you. I'm not going to retreat back to my family. I'm with you. And she, she shows that character, and she does it here again. She says, she says all that you say to me, I will do. And God calls us so many times to take these steps. And we'll see, this is a messy situation. It's not clean cut. It's not without, you know, it's complications. And, and yet, she moves forward. And I was hanging out with some friends last night, and this was a phrase I think I've heard before, but a friend said this phrase and it just hit me again. He says, God does not move parked cars. And that's one thing that you cannot say of Ruth is she was not a parked car. Uh, the, we're, we are to move forward. We're to take steps. And God, consistently throughout Scripture, he works and moves in people who are willing to move forward. And he's not afraid of those people who take some steps. Absolutely do we want to seek that those steps would be in God's purposes, in God's plans? Yes. But he's not afraid of you taking some steps. And guys, this is incredibly encouraging to me because I am a take five steps before I've ever thought where the first step should have landed type. You know, I'm a Peter type. I'm a chop off ears and ask questions later. And yet God uses Peter. 
God uses people who are, who are ready to just say, God, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to move. And, and he's not afraid of, of us having our flaws mixed in. Of us, ha- he'll use you in your personalities. He'll use you in your, even in your mistakes and in your mess. He will use you. And so God wants to work through us. And at times he calls us to just, even with questionable instructions, say, all that you say I will do, you know. The questionable instructions don't come from God. They come from mother-in-laws or, or father-in-laws or anyone, all sorts of friends. But, but we want to seek God's will, yes but be willing to step out, be willing to move forward. And so then we have here in this next scene, the meeting at the threshing floor. Ruth takes this instruction. She leaves the, uh, their, their uh, residence, and, and she heads out to the threshing floor, the place where they would have been in a celebratory uh, spirit. They, they've come to the end of their busiest time of the year. And not only that, but they've gone through a period of famine And so at this point, they really appreciate a really good harvest. And so this would have been a place of high spirits, of great uh, energy. It would have been a place where there was a celebratory nature because because that was a lot of work and we have a significant crop. And so here they are at the threshing floor. I picture a place kind of like... um, Passarobas, you know, rolling hills, a place that you can really uh, plant some crops. And, and they would have been on top of a hill, and they would have been in a, an enclosed space for the threshing floor where they would have been uh, throwing the wheat up in the air and allowing the wind to blow away the chaff. So they just would consistently grind and then throw it up and allow things to blow away. And so being at the threshing floor means a couple things. It means that they're, they're all up there after the day's work, after having really had this, this mentality of just peace and the blessing of, you know, that kind of end of the school year feeling or, or depending on your job, all sorts of feelings, you know, of just like, okay, the hardest part is done and it went well. But then they also would have been staying with their crop because they need to guard it. And so that's why they're sleeping there overnight. And, uh, and so they're in this place that, that Ruth now ventures into. Uh, And it says in verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, and Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. She waited for him to eat and to drink, and he was in good spirits. And this is what I like to call the principle of good timing right? That she waited for just the right moment. I don't know about you guys. I learned as a child uh, to wait for, you know, dad to get a snack, a drink, sit in his comfy seat, you know, really just take a breath, a beat, and then hit him with the request for like spending the night at a friend's house or something, you know? You just, you got to get that right moment. Uh, My kids, they have no concept of this, uh, they will follow me into the bathroom asking for a video game. And the answer is going to be, no, get out of here, you know? Like, they will, they will just, no concept, you know? One sibling is literally getting scolded, and I'm stressed, and they're like, can I do that? And I'm like, no. Like, do you not realize you should wait a second until I'm calmed down for a minute, you know? And uh, Ruth didn't have that problem. She comes in at this moment and she is ready to present this option to to Boaz. But now we get down into the nitty-gritty of this scene. Uh, 
I've been putting this off. <laughs> this is an interesting moment. And the truth is uh, that this threshing floor moment is fraught with the potential for being interpreted with all sorts of sexual promiscuity as a possibility. And not to be honest with you, uh, I think that was the author's intention. The author, I believe, was heightening the suspense and, and bringing us into this moment, recognizing that there was, this was a strange encounter, that, that this wasn't exactly normal behavior, uh, that this was messy, this was kind of a bit odd. And, and I wrestled with that as I was looking at this text and even how to present that. But, but as I read all of these different commentaries, everyone agreed, like, no, the author of Ruth means for this to be perceived this way, you know? It's not us reading into it and being like, this is a little bit strange going there at night, pulling his blankets over you from under his feet. It's meant to be perceived that way. But then at the same time, the author of Ruth consistently points out how honorable and of such great character each of these individuals were. And so it's just interesting to see that we have this kind of a messy situation that's not perfect. And I think that's meant to be, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more, it's meant to be an understanding that we have of how God consistently works in our mess. And these things that we look at like this, they're not meant to be, as we like to say, descriptive. Uh, they're meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive. That, that this is something where we have described to us what took place. And it's not meant to be something that we necessarily emulate every part. Like, this is how you find a spouse, right? Uh, I, I teach young adults. I've taught on relationships and dating and all that a lot. I've never once said, well, here it is in Scripture. Here's how we do it, right? I've never said that. Uh, but at the same time, wow, is God moving in what takes place here? I mean, even actually, if you look ahead, Boaz will, at the end, end of their interactions where after morning comes and they've agreed to, he's agreed to redeem her, he'll kind of sneak her out of there because he'll want to protect and guard both his and her reputation. So I believe Boaz would say like, don't know if Naomi should have told you to handle it this way, uh, but yes, I'll redeem you, you know? Uh, and so and so we have this, and, and, and it was one of the things I wrestled with as I looked at this text but what, what we see throughout this whole story, and one of the things that God really ministered to me in is that God works in our mess. God works right in the middle of our mess, and he's not afraid of it. God's not afraid of this questionable advice by Naomi. God's not afraid of coming alongside and caring for this family that fled to Moab, whether or not they were, that was what God would have had for them, whether or not they prayed about. God's not afraid of stepping into every single bit of our mess, of getting into the weeds. God's not like trying to protect his new shoes and he's not going to come out there with us and like, okay, you, when you're ready to come out of that mess, I'll be right here, right? God is willing to go there with us. He's willing to, to walk with us. I think of the prodigal son. And how the fact that God was not deterred by the fact that he was coming back with the residue of a pig's trough on him, right? God was not deterred. In fact, he ran to him. And time and time and time again, God steps into 
the midst of our mess. And he's with us there. And it 100% does not mean that that was what he wanted us to do or that's what he would have told us to do. But it doesn't mean that he says, well, you know, you made your bed, lie in it too. That's, that's not his mentality at all. He will go into that mess of a bed that we made for ourselves and he will help us. He won't stay there with us. He will pull us out of that mess and he will walk with us as we go through his redeeming process, as we go through his uh, repairing process, as he pulls us out of the things that we have fallen into or struggled with. And so God works in our mess. And guys, I've been in many messes. I've been in so many messes. I've been in so many instances where I didn't do it how God would have instructed, how God would have preferred me to probably handle it. And yet, time and time again, I am amazed by his patience and grace with me. And how there's still fruit at the end through me, but in spite of me, because of how he was willing to walk in that. And guys, that's all of the church. That's all of ministry, because God chooses to work through messed up vessels. As Pastor Ray always liked to say, he chooses to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. That he will step into these things and he will move in us and redeem. And so a couple instructions just even in that. One is we ought to be patient with the mess. We ought to be patient and we ought to be forgiving and we ought to be gracious when there's mess in the ministry, when there's mess in the process, when there's mess caused by the vessels, we don't need to say God's not in that because it's a little bit messy because no, God's in it. God's not afraid of the mess. Instead, we need to recognize that maybe there's something we could seek more wisdom or pray about it, but, but God's still working. And as a pastor now for 15 years and I've been in difficulties in ministry. And they're going to be there. They're going to be there where there's great intentions because, because I'm prideful. I'm selfish. And I guarantee you, every other person walking in those ministries, every single ministry, struggles with those things. And yet God works through it in spite of and because of his grace and his purpose is to call all of us into the ministry. And so God works in our mess. But then on top of that, God calls us to step into other people's mess. And this is a tough one. Uh, one of the sayings I've heard that I love is God's speed limit is three miles per hour. And that's because that's about the speed that most people walk at. Not me, I'm a little faster. But um, <laughs> I'm joking, guys. Okay. Uh, my wife would like me to slow down. Um, God walks in our mess, and that's exactly where he calls us to. He calls us to walk with humans. And I think and I, that specifically for us uh, as Americans, as Western culture, we want things to be so cookie cutter, so clean cut, and we, one of the most popular books, if I'm being honest, I haven't read it, but one of the most popular books of the last 10 years in the church is a book called Boundaries. And what I tend to see is the aftermath of the boundaries, which is just people thinking this book has allowed me, and definitely we need boundaries. 
Jesus had boundaries. He got away on the Sabbath to replenish. He created Sabbath, a time for refreshing. But I don't think it means we put our Christianity in a Tupperware container to keep it clean and out of the mess. That God calls us to walk at three miles per hour with those around us, to be in the midst of things that will cost us some sleep, that will take up our weekends at times, that will bring pain, that might cost us a few dollars because we're stepping into the lives of those around us and we're walking with them. We're willing to to wade out into the midst of things. And we see that Ruth was willing to. We see that's what Boaz was willing to do. And we see that's what God continually is willing to do. And that's the ministry he calls us into. And at times it includes a little bit of mess. And so we need to be willing to walk in those things, to push through those things. Verse 8 says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. So here we are in the middle of scene two. Ruth has placed herself at Boaz's feet. And I would assume as Naomi's plan was, he, he woke up at some point in the night, probably a cold breeze kind of coming across, you know. My wife's always pulling the covers off of me. I'm sure Ruth did that as well. And, uh, and so he turned And there was a woman lying at his feet. And he says, who are you? And she responded, I am your servant, Ruth. And she said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, she's going off of Naomi's plan a little bit, because Naomi said, just go there and then just do whatever he says. And she instead, she she goes straight to the, the actual desire, the, the, what's implied in her coming, taking the covering and putting over herself, is she requests, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian redeemer of our family. So what she's doing here, she's saying, cast your protection over me. To place your blanket, it's kind of like that idea of, of you know, if you bring your sweater and put it on someone else, that you're, you're putting your protection, you're taking them under your wing, and this is a beautiful image throughout scripture that God has of, of this idea that, that Jesus' cloak, even the corner of his wings, it was called, and, and that, that you cover someone over and you're bringing them into this place of warmth, this place of care, this place of concern. And, and so he would know what she meant, although then she says it right on the point. She means to, to take me in as your spouse, to take me as someone who you will who you will bring into your family, who you will be our kinsman redeemer, who you will uh, carry on this family line. And so then at this point, we're meant to feel the suspense. She's put it all out there, right? She's laid it all on the line. She's very clearly stated, right? Because when we're asking someone of something, uh, if we're asking someone to, to do something for us, if we do it in a subtle way, in a veiled way, we're kind of protecting ourselves, right? And we're just hoping they pick up on the cues, but that's not what she did. She fully put herself out there. And Boaz responds, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. The earlier kindness he refers to, he's already complimented her for in chapter two, is her honor and dignity and, and character in coming back with Naomi. But now he says, this kindness is greater than that kindness. He says, you have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you as you ask. 
All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And here it is again. The author reminds us that this is, this is who these two individuals are. And I think what's one of the fun things in this text is you look back and forth at the different chapters is here, Boaz becomes the answer to one of his own prayers. When he came across uh, Ruth and when he complimented her in the chapter before, in verse 11, he said, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother in your homeland and come to live with people you did not know before. And then he says in verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And it's just, that was his prayer, that she would be rewarded and cared for and blessed. And how often do we have a prayer and God then says to us, you know what? That's an interesting prayer. I think you're going to play a part in the answer to that prayer. Here, Boaz is playing a very big part in the answer to his own prayer for for Ruth. And so we press on as we have a big section here and a lot to say about it. Verse 12 says, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Come on, Boaz. I mean, we're right here. It's worked so perfectly. It's come together in this. No, Boaz, you're the redeemer. But again, he's got tremendous character and he wants to handle it the correct way, so we'll allow it. Verse 13, stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do this duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he will not, is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And we'll see this play out in the next chapter. Verse 14 says, verse 14 says, so she lay at his feet until morning. This has got to be an interesting night's sleep for everyone involved. I mean, Naomi's back at the house, I'm sure, kind of fretting all about this. Although, maybe not. Maybe she just slept blissfully and just like, this is a great idea. But uh, Ruth and Boaz, I don't think, were sleeping super calmly or peacefully. And so she lay there until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Uh, verse 15, he also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. And so here we enter scene three. Ruth is returning to their lodging uh, with a massive amount of barley. This is more than a year's supply. This is so much provision. And she's coming back to Naomi with this uh, great news that's not quite tied up. And it says in verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's a significant section of this text right here that we're going to camp out on for the remainder of our time. And it's this moment where Ruth comes back 
And you'll notice she says something that where she's quoting a line from Boaz, but it's not in our section where we see the interaction of Ruth and Boaz. And I believe that is the intention of the author to, to highlight it here because this line isn't for Ruth. This line is for Naomi. And so the line is, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Right? And that's not in the prior interaction. You know, it, she tells her all that happened, but this is the line that's highlighted in her repeating of the story to Naomi. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And I believe that what we have here is we have this, the heart of God in his redeeming process, where Naomi had said in chapter one, verse 21, I went away full and I came back empty-handed. And here we have that same language, but instead it's don't go back empty. And the idea is that Ruth went away empty and came back full. And we have this woman in Naomi who has gone through so much bitterness to the point that she renamed herself based off of her bitterness. And her whole life was summed up in I went away full and I have come back empty. And yet God's heart was for her. And if you zoomed in so close, you would miss the work that God ultimately was doing. And here's the thing. That work was so incredibly painful in the process. It was 10 years of famine and losing a husband and two sons. And not all at once, but in individual deaths. It doesn't tell us that all of a sudden all three were gone. But but this was incredibly painful, incredibly difficult. The grief was, was more than, than many of us could even imagine. And yet we have God bringing back together these things. We have him stepping through the mess, and we have him taking that which went out full and came back empty, and instead, now he redeems it. And that which has gone out empty now comes back full. And that's how God works in our lives. He steps into our mess to bring his fullness, to redeem, to restore, to make right. And there's so many stories, guys, that I wanted to tell tonight. And yet it's tricky and difficult to just tell these stories of, of lives that I have lived and people I've lived with and not lives I have lived. That's weird to say. The life I have lived, the lives of friends around me where, where we, we walk out in mess and we muddy the process and things get desperate and, and painful and yet we step into God's purposes and plans and how he restores and redeems and brings fullness where there was lacking, where there was emptiness. And all along the way, there were definitely missteps. All along the way, there are things where we tried to take it in our own hands like Abraham. All along the way, there are David's moments in a cave where he's running from Saul when he's already been anointed king, and he's going to be king again. But there's a moment in the cave where he's debating whether or not to kill Saul himself, and instead he slices off the corner of his robe. All along the way, there's Joseph being cast into a pit and sold into slavery, accused of terrible things by Potiphar's wife, and going through these processes, and they were painful. They were difficult. They were messy. There was mistakes. 
And yet then there's David on the throne and there's Joseph uh, helping his whole family and, and overseeing Egypt. There's God restoring and bringing fullness back into these situations. There's Abraham having the ultimate son that would be the, the, the one through whom you know, there's descendants beyond the sands of the earth. And there's pain and there's things that look like we're going in reverse. And yet then there's a shawl full of grain. There's a redeeming. There's a carrying on the line. And then there's the ultimate part that all of these stories and all of our stories get to play in the greater redemptive plan of God. And it will involve us being in the mess. It will involve years. Guys, David had years. Joseph had years. Naomi and Ruth went through years of pain. So that's not trivial. But we know that our God works all things for the good of those who diligently seek him. There's just so many years, and there's so much mess, and there's so much pain because of us, because of different situations, because of this fallen world. And that works all things, couple of words right there, that he brings about reversal in the end. He brings about a redeeming for Naomi, for Ruth, for us as believers, for, for humanity if they'll receive it. Let's finish by reading Romans 8.26. Just let this sink in. In the same way, the Spirit comes to us and helps us in our weakness. We do not know what prayer to offer or how to offer it as we should. That's how it feels in the mess. That's how it feels in the pain. We don't know what prayer to offer, what to say. But the Spirit himself knows our need and at the right time intercedes on our behalf with our sighs, with our groanings, with our pains our, our, that are too deep for words. And he knows, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes before God on behalf of God's people in accordance with God's will. Guys, with these few verses leading into the one ultimately we want to look at, are saying is through all of the pain and all of the difficulty in ways, things that we can't explain and things that we feel like this can't possibly be right, the Spirit is moving and interceding on our behalf. Ultimately, here it says in verse 28, and we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his plan and purpose that he works things out. He's a redeeming God. Where we go out empty, he intends to bring us back full. And there's years and there's pain, but it says here that we should have great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, is working these things together. We have a redeeming God. We have a God who's not afraid to get into the mess who's not deterred by all of our grime, but is ready to draw us near and to bring us in. And so draw near to him tonight. Don't be afraid of your mess. Uh, invite him in. He'll come around. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.